0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zino. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's story about a U.S. Army captain who went green to gold and his experience overseas, currently serving as a PAO. We'll get to that coming up in a few moments. But first, a couple of reminders. As always, keep the Apple reviews coming. We want to crack the Top 100 Apple Podcasts. We need to get over 1,000. We're about halfway there, so it doesn't have to be a long review, a lengthy review. You can do it right from your smartphone. Just give us five stars, write a small review. And the good reviews, we like to post them on social media so it could be yours make sure you follow us on all the social media accounts facebook twitter and instagram at hazard Ground at hazard Ground podcast don't forget to subscribe to our youtube channel and as always for those who are watching this we appreciate you watching on youtube make sure you follow kill cliff's youtube channel as well download the kill cliff app and check us out there as well don't forget about our promotion with amazon you can go to our website hazardground.com you click on the amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and you do all your normal Amazon shopping. Very simple, very convenient, also from your smartphone. If you go to the website hazardground.com, it'll redirect your rate to the app, so all your credit card information is saved, so user-friendly, and you can you can help veterans out just by doing your shopping on Amazon when you go to hazardground.com first, because we get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So again, super simple, super easy, and a great way to help veterans all across America. On to this week's story. Again, a U.S. Army captain currently serving with the 3rd Special Forces Group. He's a PAO there at North Carolina. in North Carolina. rather, He started out his career enlisting as a Cav Scout in 2005, and after obtaining the rank of sergeant, went green to gold to become an officer. He has one deployment to Iraq back in 2006. He is Captain Rick Dixon joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Rick, welcome, and thank you so much for being here.
1: Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: All right great to talk to you um i had you know because you're a pao i had shot you a note about the hazard ground and wanted to get your thoughts and, and check it out and you said to me hey i'd love to come on and tell a story about the guys that i deployed with uh so we're excited to hear that we certainly appreciate you wanting to tell your story it's not uh it's not always easy uh to get people to talk to us sometimes but it's always great when people want to share their stories so we thank you for uh for stepping up to the plate in that sense of
1: course happy to be here
0: all right, so go back to the beginning for you. Um, I know you enlisted in the army back in two thousand and five, but kind of what was the reason for it? Was it college money, post nine eleven stuff? What was your what thinking?
1: Oh, uh so I I actually went to college right out of high school for a year at Texas State and the grades were not <laughs> very good coming out of there and I'd actually enrolled in ROTC to start my sophomore year, but um I decided that I wanted to go in right then. I I didn't really have a military background. Uh my family have have not served in the military except for my grandfather's back in the 60s. So um just wanted to get over there and 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 go do something for my country and it wasn't just because of the grades and I joke around about that, but I did have a sense of uh patriotism that I wanted to go to go do something.
0: Did you know exactly what you wanted to do or did you leave it up to the ASVAB score and said I'll I'll take whatever they give me? Nah. No,
1: I actually scored really well on the on the ABFAB. Um I think my GT score was like a 128, and so long that took it. But um, no, it's actually the videos that got me. It was either Infantry or Cab Scout, and the Cab Scout one for some reason won me over. So uh, that's you, what I went with.
0: So you wanted to be all you can be, but I think that slogan was out by the time you got in. But nonetheless, uh, it, was all, <laughs> yeah. it was all about exactly. doing the Hua stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so did you know anything about basic training and the whole experience going in, or were you just kind of walking in blind?
1: No, I walked in completely blind. Um, and I, it was about six weeks, I think from the time I signed the contract till I deploy or till I went over to basic and, um, I went to Fort Knox and I had no idea what to expect. And it was, it was quite eye opening. (laughs) <laughs> to say the least, and that was back. You know, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that um, that were allowed there. So uh, disconnected from everyone, basically.
0: What was the most shocking part about it to you?
1: Um, I think I knew, you know, it was going to be kind of tough, but I, I definitely didn't expect to have um, all of the things that the drill sergeants threw at us and. We were just getting smoked nonstop over there. Um, it, was, it was pretty brutal. And so I, I really didn't expect all that. Um, I didn't expect to have my you know, mattresses thrown all the way around the hallways and taking 30-second showers lined up next to other guys towels and towels and stuff like that. So um, I knew it was going to be difficult. I didn't know all the little things that were going to be involved.
0: Was Was there a moment where you went, made a bad decision, probably should have rethought this one?
1: No, I, I, I was pretty, you know, I was I was much more physically fit than I am now. Um, I, I was okay with it, and, and I was happy to be there, and I, I really felt uh, a sense of unity and, and team, um, even though I knew I wasn't going to be with those guys forever. Um, but no, I didn't have any regrets once I was there.
0: What was the feeling for you graduating? Basic training, that is.
1: Oh, so, you know, during basic, uh, I guess they had all the basic companies back then, and maybe they do now, they pretty much ship most of us to the same spot. So I think the class right before us was going to Hawaii, and we were supposed to go to Fort Hood, Texas, and, you know, I said, no way, I'm not going to Fort Hood, I just came from Texas, I want to go do something else. And so they asked for volunteers to go to, um, to Airborne School, and so the day I graduated, I went on a bus from Fort Knox to Fort Benning to airborne school. So, um, it it was not much, there was not much time to celebrate graduating basic before, before going there.
0: Yeah. I I can vouch from personal experience. Fort hood sucks. Um, my producer, Matt, who, uh, who, him and I've known each other 20 years. That was, we went to OBC together and went to Fort hood together and, uh, yeah, Fort hood kind of sucks. Um, clean Texas is not, the party that they made it out to be in the brochure that's for darn sure so uh, I guess you lucked out but you end up uh, after everyone's school going to the 82nd obviously.
1: Yeah they had just stood up the uh, cavalry squadron or were about to stand up the cavalry squadron so I actually went to to uh, 3505 PIR and then uh, most they were at actually at Katrina whenever I got there and then um, I was on rear D until they got back and then they re to 573 cab about two months after that in January of 06.
0: All right. So when you get to your first duty station, what month and year is it now?
1: When I got to Bragg, it was um, November of 05.
0: All right. So you got about, what, 10 months before you get to your first deployment. Do you know that mm-hmm. the unit you're going with is deploying that soon? Do you have any idea?
1: No, I didn't really have any idea we were going to deploy. Um you know, I was just focused on on getting there and not getting the crap smoked out of me every single day. So it, it I had no clue what was going on. I mean, it was private. I wasn't in the, you know, the training meetings and all that kind of stuff. So I really didn't know. And plus, every like I said, everybody was gone in Louisiana, and that was their main focus at the time. But we we started figuring out we were training for deployment in January.
0: Let me ask you just kind of tangentially here. Did when did you get an inkling that you wanted to go become an officer? Was that post-deployment or was it something that you always had in the back of your mind?
1: Um, Yeah, I kind of wanted to go. Again, I didn't really know what it all entailed and what the big difference was between officer enlisted, but it it was probably sometime in March or April of of 06 when I had kind of uh, taken on a leadership role. We didn't have any specialists and so it just went from there's like eight PFCs and then it went to sergeant. So I was – I wouldn't say I was like some pseudo leader of the PFCs, um, but uh, I did have some NCOs that were talking to me about, about becoming an officer um, and, and it started catching my eye. And so I wanted to go, I just, I didn't really have the time to do anything besides train. And my focus is on, on going to wherever we were going to go at that point. We really didn't know, um, but going somewhere.
0: All right. So when do you first hear about Iraq?
1: So we thought that we were going to go to Iraq and, you know, at the time we were just, we had gone to, uh, uh, Fort Polk for JRTC and we were doing all the Fort Bragg training. Um, but we honestly really didn't know where we were going. I remember a whiteboard in the, the HHC room that had like running bets of where we were going to go and they had like Horn of Africa, Afghanistan, Iraq. And we really didn't know where we were going to go until. I guess it was about a month before and they, they said you going to Iraq and it was, it was pretty hurried on packing up the stuff to go I mean, that's from my not, recollection.
0: That's kind of crazy that, I mean, maybe you just didn't know. It just seems out of, out of sort of army style to at the last minute without some major event kicking off for you not to know where you were going and who you were backfilling. Right.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, the higher ups um, outside the company command probably had, a general sense, but, um, I did read, there's a book that was written, um, by Peter Svoboda about our, our deployment. He does mention in there just how chaotic it was right before we went that we really didn't have a lo- a general location of where we were going to go. And then once they, they said Iraq, um, our brigade was kind of spread out around around Iraq and even our, our squadron itself. So we didn't really know exactly the, the area we were going to go. I, I do remember thinking. Um, why are we in the jungle of Louisiana if we're going to go to a desert? And so um, I didn't really understand that. And then once we got there, um, it actually looked like a jungle where we were at. So that, that all worked out.
0: Do you know um, where exactly in Iraq or as you say, when do you find out where exactly in Iraq you're going and kind of what your mission set is?
1: Um, I don't remember the exact timing of it. Um, and I, I, I had no clue exactly what we were getting into. I honestly thought when we landed in Iraq that, you know, or after we, because we went to Kuwait first for about three weeks. And I thought, you know, okay, Kuwait is definitely a desert. Um, Iraq will probably be a little bit more of a, you know, treed desert, has some trees around, but it's still going to be a desert. And then when we got where we're going, it just did not look like that at all.
0: Where did you end up going? We went to the,
1: um, we we end up doing most of our work in the Diyala River Valley and Diyala Province.
0: Okay, which is, if I recall, like southwest of Baghdad, right? Uh,
1: I think it's I think it's northeast about thirty five miles. Came okay, on
0: the wrong side.
1: Yes. Right.
0: Anyway, yeah. Anyway, we you, were
1: riding along the river most of the time.
0: Gotcha. Um, what's your mission when you get there?
1: So when we got to Iraq itself, we um, our troop stayed at five wars and the rest of the squadron went up, um, by the Iran border. Um, so we stayed down there for about two or three months and, um, we started going out into towns and we would rotate platoons in and out of, of this one town. Um, and we'd stay there for two days at a time. And then the other platoon would come in. Um, I, I don't really know what the rest of the squadron was doing on that Iran on the Iran border. They had, um, they did have a lot of missions up there. Um, they had uh, a mission called Turkey Bowl 1, and then they had Turkey Bowl 2, which were pretty big uh, conflicts up there. But our main mission was actually in the towns and, and kind of you know um, just creating a, a general sense of who we are and, and that we're here. We took over for 4th ID, so we kind of did a right seat, left seat ride with them. Um, but those two days for us as privates, we uh, were pretty awful, actually. <laughs> Why? Um, because it, it wasn't so much, um, you know, we were all kind of nervous about going out in the towns and, and kind of going, you know, door to door and doing those things. Um, but really it's because we had two hours on, two hours off guard for 48 hours straight. Um, and so by the time we got up to to guard, it, you know, we're up there for two hours and we come back down, you have an hour and a half of sleep, and then just right back at it. And then at the same time we're doing – um, just patrols on the ground and, and walk around the town and stuff like that so um, it was it was rough in that sense but it wasn't rough in like the combat sense yet.
0: Yeah I mean and forgive me here you know you talk about the sort of uh, what you thought you were going into what you got you're in an urban environment um, were you guys mounted Cavs I mean you, I know there some people had tanks and Bradleys and everything uh, in Iraq were you guys what sort of uh, unit were you guys as far as Cav Scouts were concerned?
1: Yeah, we so we trained with six Humvees here at Bragg, okay. and then when we got on ground there, we only had four, and so we had uh, you know we got rid of our our three truck and our six truck, um, and so we usually rolled out the gate in a, a two one three four configura- configuration, um, but we didn't we actually got on Bradleys, uh, which none of us had been on in forever, um, and we got but we didn't get on them until later on in the deployment when we started taking a lot of uh, IEDs and stuff.
0: So when you finally get onto ground, uh, where you're getting settled, uh, what's kind of your operational tempo like every single day? How often are you out on mission? Um, you know, what, what's your sleep cycle like, you know, just kind of give us an idea of life for you, what it was like there.
1: Yeah, we were, we were out quite a bit, um, when the rest of the troop was there with us. And I think that ended in about November and then the rest of the troop. So we, we've been on ground for about three months we we were, we were, consistently rotating in and out of five war horse. Um, and then in November timeframe, the rest of the troop went back up with the rest of the squadron and our platoon stayed there at five war horse. And we started doing uh, PSD for the, um, the third brigade commander out of first Cav, And so three, one was there. Um, and we started doing PSD back and forth from five war horse to the, the provincial government site in, um, in Diallo province for that colonel. So we would go on, we would split it up where we'd go out for a day and then come back for a day and go out for a day and come back for a day. And it was actually uh, not bad at all during that time for, for our platoon.
0: I mean, we've talked to guys who have done PSDs before uh, and there's usually one or two sentiments about it. This job is cool and I love it because I get to do a lot of cool stuff and see a lot of cool things that I would never get to do otherwise. Or two, this job sucks because it's not what I came here to do. So for you, which one was it?
1: Yeah uh it 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 sucked it, so we did not like it we did not understand why um while we were going um like five miles an hour down the road we were used to going like 60 miles an hour down the road and so it was just a different it was just a different thing it wasn't kinetic we weren't doing what we were trying to do um and i get it we had orders and they needed a psd and and we were tagged to do it but um it was definitely different than you know walking around the towns and um, you know, doing the whole hearts and minds thing at the time. Um, we were basically just, the uh, uh, security for the Colonel. So
0: let's go to the, uh, the, the hearts and mind portion, as you just mentioned, um, you know, walking through the towns and everything else, what stands out to you about sort of those memories and those, you know, those moments where you're going through that, um, was it a lot of resistance that you met? Were you kicking down a lot of doors or was a lot of these engagements, mostly friendly, Were you sitting there just drinking chai and, and relaxing with your shoes off on, on, on a, uh, you know, Persian rug kind of, what was that experience for you? Uh,
1: yeah, definitely wasn't out relaxing on Persian rug. I wish, <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't um, very bad at all. And, and I don't, I don't remember any type of bad sentiments from the population there. I, I have some pictures from, that time period where um, we had a lot of interactions with the kids in the town and, and they were all great. And, and um, you know, I'm sure that some of the leaders that had leader engagements might say something different, but for us that were, um, and I was, you know, obviously I was very tight knit with the other 11 guys that were all privates with me. Um, we generally enjoyed it uh, being out there and, and being amongst the population.
0: Was there any, uh, you know, sort of resistance to those efforts?
1: um well so we not really in the towns uh, we did take our first ied hit um in october of that year that was um was september october I, I think it was october we were the first uh truck hit actually um and but it wasn't anywhere near the town it was just kind of on the on the way on a road and um i just remember getting hit um from the back right side and then it kinda just took off the antenna and, and the back portion of the, the Humvee. It wasn't anything um crazy strong that we that we were, were gonna see later on the deployment. Um it was but obviously it you know scared the shit out of us. So um Parker you know, on high, huh? Yeah. I mean I was I was up in the gunner's hatch and um I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything coming so um, there was another time we took three ID hits that fall on on my vehicle, um, and you know one of the times I saw actually the the Christmas tree lights in the in the front uh, on the road, so they, we were able to stop it. Um, and that was actually after we had, had gotten hit. So we got hit, and you know, we our our SOP was to push through the kill zone couldn't really see anything because it's all dusty everywhere like right in the aftermath of it um we started pushing through and then i saw the the strand across the across the road so um yeah those were those were those were pretty scary honestly and uh one of those took out um get got a pretty good shrapnel blast to my uh driver's uh left side of his face um fire extinguisher probably saved his leg honestly It, it exploded everywhere so we were covered with all those White fire extinguisher stuff. All of us, um, but nothing, nothing serious uh, at that time. No casualties, no deaths um, on our end. Um, we did lose um, two guys up again near the near the Iran border, um, and those were the first two casualties of, of our squadron.
0: What was that like hearing that news for the guys?
1: Um, it was pretty nerve wracking, um, just because we had worked with a lot of those a lot of those people that were that were involved up there and uh we were were so far away from the rest of the squadron we didn't really know exactly what was going on up there um but we had heard um you know back-to-back guys that were that were killed up there and you know because we only had um around 300 or 350 people in our squadron you know we just always we knew these people even if we didn't know them personally we remember their faces or like had seen them in training or seen them with their guys or around the garrison um and just so it's just like it started at that point to you know hit home cuz we had gone from august to november without without losing anybody so we made it through the first four months
0: did you get a sense that in that time that not that you were invincible per se but that it, the road wasn't going to be that bumpy, or did you always sort of have this reservation in the back of your mind, like it's eventually going to get bad at some point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I thought that you know you're taking your chances when you go on the roads, and yeah. that's you know, but at least I'm not having to to go kick down doors right now. Um, and there was a lot of other fighting that was going on in the country that that we weren't a part of, but um, just because we had already been hit um, multiple times on our our vehicle we just knew that's, that's one of the reasons why we were so worried about going so slow on these PSD um, escorts was, you know, if they can hit us going 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. We just felt like sitting ducks there at, at like five or 10 miles an hour. So, um, you know, we weren't really scared day to day until we were going out the wire, but honestly, it just kind of started getting routine. And um, we just you know, it didn't really phase us going out anymore. I'd, I'd say, like, the the most exciting stuff, the most scariest stuff for us, um, not scary, but nervous stuff for us, it was, like, our first night mission back in September. And then, um, you know, the first couple of times you go back out after you get hit um, by an ID.
0: Yeah, I mean, did, did you ever have a feeling of, like, impending doom, if you will? Um, I know it always happened to me. There were just some days where it's like, how many times can you roll the dice before you crap out, right? How many times can you roll dice where something really, really bad happens? And there were days I would wake up, you know, knowing I was going out on a mission and just have this sinking feeling in my stomach. Like today's something bad's got to happen today.
1: Yeah. We got a little bit superstitious, uh, as time went on, um, especially after the first two guys died in November. Um, you know, we lost our Lieutenant in January to a, uh, foot injury. Um, he got, he got hit by an ID and and you know, we were kind of superstitious about that because he had come up before the the mission and said um that he was gonna lead. And, you know, typically I was I was in the two truck and typically the two truck led. Um but the the platoon leader wanted to take it, uh Lieutenant Brown and uh he he led us out there and then just a perfectly placed bucket bomb just came up right underneath his seat and uh we called first cab out there for QRF and they loaded him up into Bradley and we didn't see him again until November of that year at the ball. So, um, you know, at that point we were like, well, we're going to stick to, uh, you know, what we've been doing so we don't mess anything else up.
0: What's it like when you guys sustain your first casualty, like within, you know, your small group?
1: Um, you know, that one, that one was, I wouldn't say it was nerve wracking, but it was, it was kind of a shock to us that we had just lost our platoon leader um, all of a sudden. And now we're platoon leaderless. Um, and then once he left, we, our, our platoon sergeant got moved out. So we have brand new leadership come in. Um, you know, but it's it still, I still feel at that point, it wasn't, you know, we still were not in the thick of stuff. Um, the surge had not come up yet and the rest of the guys weren't back down uh, but it definitely, you know, I, we could see then that the IIDs were getting more, um, uh, complicated and better placed and they were becoming more damaging because uh, we had been hit a few times and, um, although there were some shrapnel wounds and stuff like that, no one had, had had to be medevaced or had to leave the area. Yet. So that was our first one that we took and, um, it definitely made us think a little bit.
0: Was anybody, was anybody killed in action while you were there?
1: Well, so in our platoon, uh, private Gonzalez had been in our platoon most of the time. Um, he went to our headquarters, uh, platoon about three weeks before he died. Um, I, so no one from our platoon while they were in our platoon died. And that, that actually, that casualty actually occurred later on, uh, during the surge portion. But, you know with 60 guys in a troop um we're all kind of working hand in hand and we were you know we were right there whenever those four casualties occurred Gonzalez died on the same day with three others um and we were right there and you know Charlie Troop ended up running back toward them and we ended up going back to the site and uh one of the guys I took off his uh, <laughs> name tape and I carry it with me still so um you know nobody from our platoon um Got killed while while uh, serving in our platoon, and um, that's the same for the other two platoons um, in our in our troop as well. Uh, the four guys that died actually came from the the headquarters platoon that were in our troop.
0: You, you mentioned the surge uh, twice. Now you ended up staying there over a year. Uh, for the civilians listening, you know, typical army deployments are twelve months, boots on the ground. So. You get there on April 1st, March 31st of the following year, you get to get on a plane and go home. But you guys had stayed longer. It was because of the surge that they extended you guys?
1: Yeah, it was. I, th- I think it was about April. Um, you know, we started kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and um, in August rolling around, you know, you start backdating it. Okay, July, we're packing up. We're going to start getting ready to go. Um, and then we got extended for an extra three months. And so we ended up being there from August 8th of, of 06 to. Uh, October 27th of, of seven.
0: Was that deflating for the guys? Was it like, damn, now we got to stay here longer or people just kind of accept oh, it as is.
1: Yeah, no, it was awful. And it was, it was very deflating um, because of the, the casualties we had sustained. Um, there had to be a lot of reorganization across the squadron. Um, and we started getting new guys in about the, uh, about the three months ago, Mark. Um, and they just got treated terribly. Um, they were getting smoked all the time and just imagine, and I felt, I feel so bad for them now. Um, but at the time, you know, we're, they're walking in and, you know, we have been there for almost a year and, you know, these guys are you know coming in out of basic and they want to go fight and we're just like, okay, <laughs> like we've already done that. We really don't want to go keep doing that. Um, and so it was tough all the way around and tensions were high, but, um, yeah, we, we ended up, um, it ended up getting a little bit better for us. And the op-tempo slowed down about a month or so before we left.
0: Did any casualties happen during the, that three month extension? And I only asked that because I know, I mean, a lot of people would be super bitter. Hey, we shouldn't have been here. This shouldn't have happened, you know, kind of deal because we're told Mm -hmm. a year and then they pull the rug rug out from underneath us. Anything like that happen?
1: Uh, We lost one in August and it was um, due to a, uh, mishaps he was loading ammo um into he's actually on the fob loading ammo into uh the back of a gator and uh somehow a primer got hit and the, and the bullet actually fired and came back and hit him in the chest and killed him um oh, wow. that was that was quite a shock uh that guy spoke like five different languages he used to uh um you know i used to talk to him all the time because he's one of my uh good friends but you know we were out and the and the you know, town's doing what we do and you never think that someone on the FOB's is going to die. Um, and that's exactly what happened, but no, besides that one, nobody else, uh, died during the three month extension. Um, all of our guys minus him and the two, um, that were in November, um, you know, everybody died from, uh, March 25th, um, until like the first week of May.
0: So as you're coming back from the deployment, um, do you sort of start to take a mental inventory of all the guys that went with you that didn't come home with you? Is, is that like sort of an overwhelming thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, it really was. And it, it's actually, you know, it still weighs on a lot of the guys. Um, we have a really good support network. We have a, a private Facebook page and um, we've had a 10 year reunion here at Bragg. Um, we had a 12 year reunion in DC. Um, and some of our leaders have gone and do great things. Uh, my first sergeant, one of my really good friends, Tim Bethany, um, you know, is just wrapping up being Sergeant major over there for general Miller in, uh, Afghanistan. Um, we, Lieutenant general Pappas is up in the Pentagon now. Um, and those guys really lead and, and, um, you know, lead these reunions and, and help us out. Um, and then just everybody just stays in touch. And so, it's weighed on some people. We've actually had some suicides and, you know, I can't say what's going through their mind and whether or not, you know, they did because of that. Um, But I certainly know that I've gotten texts and messages from friends that were over there with me and, you know, right by my side that have, you know, said, you know, I can't believe, you know, we made it and they didn't. Um, And then also just to thank one another, you know, if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have you, then I, you know, I wouldn't be here. Um, it's just a good sense of family. Um, and we're, uh, we're all very close and, uh, but yeah, it definitely weighed on a lot of us. And I, you know, during the deployment, you know, it really weighed on me. Um, because when we started taking the the casualties is mostly from IEDs. Um, and then we had one day where we lost nine, nine guys in one day. Um, I think that was like the, the largest, one-day casualty event for the seconds since, like, the Vietnam War. Um, wow, what happened? Uh, we, so, they were at a patrol base about 10 miles from us, um, and there was a, uh, there were two trucks. One truck, uh, like, breached the perimeter and blew up right next to the compound, um, and then another truck came in and, and detonated as well, um, and these guys, um, they were all from San Francisco and they were just caught in the they were just caught in the building um uh, most of them and, and most of them died um right there um i think there were two that were that were able to be medevac but they they both died from their their injuries as well so you know to lose 9 out of 18 uh guys in a day it's pretty stressful and then to continually it, we were losing guys like every 10 days and so you know every 10 days we were having memorial services and so we were going down the road, the same roads that they were getting killed on. You know, we're dri- driving right by the big hole in the road where they got killed um, on the way to the memorial service. You know, and you know, we could get killed on the way to the memorial service or on the way back. Or so it was. It was really the, I would say like March to May were really difficult times for the entire squadron. Um, and the squadron had come down from Iran. We were all together at this point, and so it was that was a really difficult time. That was that was by far I think the hardest of the
0: the tour. I mean, is there anything that you could tell yourself? You know, anything you in retrospect, you could you could have told yourself before the deployment that might have made those losses easier to take or to deal with that you could have passed on to the rest of the platoon at that point in time. I mean, what sort of advice would you have given?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I was just so ignorant to the entire thing. Again, I, you know, my, nobody in my family had served. I, I didn't grow up hearing war stories. Um, I didn't really know anybody that served. I came from a very small town in Texas. Um, and I actually think um, my ignorance probably helped me um, at the, at that time. I just, I just kind of didn't think about it. And I thought I kind of went into deployment thinking, you know, I signed up for this. I wanted to go to fight in Iraq. Um, and so I was, I was pretty much okay with dying there and I kind of accepted that. Um, and obviously that, you know, you're still scared going out in your first or second mission or third mission or whatever. But as we got into it, um, you know, it just, it just became like that's what we were there to do. And I, even after, um, you know, the, the casualties we were taking, of course, when you're at memorial ceremonies and you're driving back to them and stuff like that, you have a time, you have time to pause and reflect, but. I don't think that anybody in the squadron while we were on missions or about to go on mission or anything like that was, you know, thinking, okay, this might be my time. I I just, I just think that we were so focused on on what we were doing. Um, I I mean, I, I certainly did not think about it while, while we were, uh, while we were doing missions, it was only during those lull times where, you know, I thought, man, like that could have been, that could have been me. I mean, I took a picture of one guy, um, captain grass squad, you know, took a picture at the patrol base. And then like 10 minutes later, we just heard this thunderous boom. Um, and him and, and three others had died. And then, um, I don't know if you know, staff Sergeant Bobby Henline, um, but he was like seriously burned and injured in that. And so, you know, we just been talking to those guys 15 minutes <laughs> before that. So, yeah, but it, you know, I, I don't think there's anything I could have told myself to prepare me for what was going to come.
0: No, I mean, it's and it, it's one of the Army's still flaws. You know, we have a manual for everything. Uh, we have a class for everything. We've got a PowerPoint presentation for everything. But the one thing we never bother to teach anybody is how to deal with the grief uh, and loss in war. Um, we just yeah. say, hey, suck it up and drive on. Uh, you know, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with a recent guest, Jason Kander, um, who, who, you know— uh, served overseas and and basically he was running for mayor in Kansas city. You might not know who he is, but he pulled out of the mayoral race because of his PTSD. He's like, I got to deal with this. I'm ready to kill myself. And we were having the conversation just basically like we don't ever teach each other in specifically in the army to stand back and take a knee. Like we don't, we don't allow for it. It's just drive on Charlie, Mike mission continues, whatever. Um, and we do it to our own detriment because all this stuff catches up with you regardless. There's no escaping Mm -hmm. it. Uh, everything that goes on will catch up to at some point in time, it's just a matter of how it manifests itself and when it will come up. Um, but the idea of taking a knee isn't something that we're willing to do, especially in those circumstances while downrange.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a hundred percent right. I mean, I know in the past, you know, 13 years, I've certainly had nights where, um, you know, I drank too many and, and thought about all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's, it, the support network that we have, um, in our little community of what we call task force 300 is just incredible. So, uh, we're always there to lean on each other. Um, but like I said, we've, we've lost some guys to, uh, to suicides. Um, and again, I, you know, I wish I knew it was going through their head and could have helped them out. Um, even though I didn't know them, but I can't tell you how many people are on that, that group page that, you know, I don't rec- recognize their name, but they would absolutely pick up the phone. Um, and I, I think that i have seen over the years as the army's progressed uh, a much more bigger emphasis on mental health than uh and probably cuz the op tempo slowed but you know much more emphasis on on mental health than than back then
0: yeah i, I mean absolutely it's, it's funny i ran into a um i ran into a guy from uh first sf uh and he's actually down here in atlanta where i live going to a place called the shepherd center at the share military initiative for his TBI. Like, well, he's still on active duty. They literally looked at him and said, you need to go, like you need to go get right and go fix yourself, which is not something that we, especially in that community. Right. I mean, you're in, you're in the the special ops community. You understand this. They, They don't often let guys go to take care of X, Y, and Z. That's not mission oriented or mission related. So I thought that to that point, you know, the military is doing a lot better at mental health and acknowledging that it's, it's an issue because, the welfare of our forces at risk with it. I mean, the, the you know, and again, maybe not so much now because what is it like fifty percent of the active duty hasn't actually deployed yet at this point in time, which is crazy to think. Oh wow, that's how long we've been at war. I, I don't quote me on those numbers, but it's it's one we've had so much turnover, and the guys like you know yourself and myself who are hanging on in the teens and into the twenty years, they're less and less because they've all gotten out. And so as we mm-hmm. re- replace them all with privates and everything else, they haven't had a chance to go down range yet. I mean, just go look around, um, you know, and again, it's it's only the National Guard, but I can tell you when I walk around, you know, I don't see a lot of right sleeve patches hanging on. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. there, they're empty um, because a lot of the younger part of the this, this, you know, new generation of soldiers hasn't had a chance to deploy yet because, as we talked about, the operational tempo slowed, and now it's, you know, all but come to a stop from that standpoint. So, um Anyway, we digress. Uh, all right, so you get back from the deployment, um, and you sort of sort of reintegrate yourself. How quickly do you decide to go uh, green to gold, and, and what's that process for you? And was there anything, by the way, anything about the deployment that sort of galvanized that thought for you? It's like, okay, now I'm going to do this. This is my time.
1: Uh, no, nothing about the deployment. I would say that I did take a lot of uh, examples from my platoon leadership and the, the troop leadership, and I thought, you know, that's, that's something that um, – that I want to do. Um, sorry. And um, and so that's, you know, as I got back, I got reintegrated and started, you know, just going about my life. Um, and then I went to um, Fort Irwin, California. I had three options. I'd go to Fort Knox. I'd go to Fort Polk, or I'd go to Fort Irwin. And they were all awful choices. Oh, um, and I chose Fort Irwin. <laughs> um, and so I ended up there. in like like, HHC. That- <laughs>
0: How? Who did you piss off at your branch that those are the three choices they gave you? Dear Lord, I mean, you know, they suck, suckier and suckiest. Like that's terrible.
1: Yeah, I think they just wanted me to go to, um, um, you know, go do some training stuff. That's what. That's ultimately what they wanted, and so you know, those are the options. Um, well, you'd already been in Knox, was, right?
0: You had already had that experience. Yeah, yeah. So you, you weren't yeah. going back there.
1: Nope, and I wasn't going to pull. Up- Cause I, you know, I, I grew up, um, where I was born about an hour away from there. And so I went to Irwin, um, and I, um, had just gotten married. And so my wife was pregnant at the time. I <laughs>
0: right now, but, she must have um, loved
1: that. <laughs> well, yeah. So she was about six hours from home though. Cause she was from Phoenix. So oh,
0: okay. Well, there you go. That, then That's the one. Up well, that was okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was actually the reason they we went out there. Um, and then it was about nine months into that rotation that I got orders to go to Fort Polk at my one year mark. And so at that point I said, no way, I'm going to go green to gold. And so I reenlisted for six years because there's a clause somewhere in the regulation that you can do this. Um, if so I reenlisted for six years took a grand bonus and then I was out in like two months because all I needed to get was acceptance into the school, acceptance into the ROTC program and a, a 4187 signed by a colonel. And so I did those things. If you if you, you know, go to a commissioning source, you get to keep your reenlistment bonus. Um, so I was out the door on August fifth of oh nine with the ETS in hand, because I did the um, non scholarship green to gold. So I was completely out of the military.
0: Oh really? Mm-hmm. I am I am unaware that that's that little loophole exists. Loophole is not the right word, but that little option existed. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's why it was so quick, because otherwise I would have had to wait for like a board for uh, active duty option to to go active duty option. And so we had a couple of people at Arizona State that did that and they got paid the entire time, which is very nice. Um, but I got completely out and so I ended up working a job at Home Depot um, from like eight o'clock at night to like one in the morning going to school and doing ROTC stuff.
0: So that's that's it. So you were just working to an ROTC stuff as as a. So, so what was your commitment though? Like if you're completely out, like, I mean, did you grow a beard and just, you know, live like a recluse for two years? Like what, what? I don't, I, I'm trying to process all this. Like, it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could do that during the summer. That's what I did uh, during the summer and during, during Christmas. I mean, if school was out, you know, I got to do whatever basically, um, while the duty option people had to, um, you know, put in leave or whatever they had to do to, to get time off. And so a lot of time off in uh, junior and senior year of college. So yeah. It was, it was pretty nice.
0: So after you graduate, what happens? Do you go right back to active duty? I mean, obviously you go to your basic course, but how did the rest yeah, of the plan so, work out?
1: Yeah. So I commissioned in May um, of 11. And then I went up to Fort Lewis, Washington actually and did like the, uh, and I can't remember the, the actual terminology, the, the acronym is TAC, but I was basically like a second Lieutenant who followed, some junior cadets around and like graded them on everything. PLDC, so right? That got, yeah, yeah. So that that got me into active duty, which so I didn't have to wait until until yeah, to Fort get Lewis my Fort Lewis is duty where a basic
0: camp was for officers for ROTC guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was up at Fort Lewis. I think they moved it to Knox
0: now. They have moved it, but but for for it used to be at Bragg, and then when I was commissioned years ago, I was like the first or second year where they moved it to to Fort Lewis. Which uh, – yeah. the, and, and the one thing I remember is the anthills. The, the, they have these huge anthills at Fort Lewis that are protected, right? And these are like – they have mm-hmm. like red heads and black bodies and these fire ants. And when, whenever we would do like stick slings and everything, like if you'd run and go on the ground and land on the anthill, they would be all over you, bro. Like just biting the hell out yeah. of you. And you'd just stand up and start screaming like a little girl. Um, because of these stupid anthills. But anyway, I, I, again, <laughs> one more stupid story I didn't need to tell. So anyway, uh, yeah, Fort Lewis is where, where advance camp was for uh, uh, for officers uh, going through ROTC. So you go there, and then when do you end up back at your next actual duty station?
1: So after, after Bullock at Benning and then the recon course, I got to Fort Carson in, I believe it was May of twelve. Yeah, there so that that makes up for the yeah. uh, the Fort
0: Irwin going to Fort Carson.
1: Oh God, Fort Carson looks amazing. It's a great, it's the greatest base in the army. gorgeous.
0: Yeah, it's the yeah. best base in the army. <laughs>
1: well, I don't know about that. You know, I got Fort Bragg over here, but
0: I'll, I'll take Carson. Thanks. Um, just a personal <laughs> preference, but anyway, so uh, you end up at Carson, uh, and where are you there?
1: I was in uh, one six seven armor. Okay. I, I think they moved down to Bliss now, but um, they were there part of Second Brigade. Um, so we went to Kuwait for for nine months. Then um, late thirteen, going into fourteen, and then once we got back, we shut down the entire brigade, and most of those units went to Bliss, um, and uh, they just Second Brigade was just gone.
0: Wait, how long <laughs> so did you stay that, at Kuwait? Nine months. Oh God, that's awful.
1: It was pretty bad. What
0: is it with you? Why do you keep getting shitty assignments?
1: I don't know. That's where (laughs) we went. And uh, we, you know, I missed the birth of my son. Um, Couldn't go home for that for some reason. Um, And then when we left was June of 14. And I remember being in meetings and they were deciding, like our, our battalion commander said, you know, we might be leaving tomorrow or we might be staying here and going up to Baghdad because ISIS was coming in from the northwest at that time. Um, and I just remember telling, I was the XO of one of the companies. I just remember telling my company commanders, like, sir, I'm not going, <laughs> I'm not going back to Iraq. I'm going home. So, uh, we didn't have to stay. We didn't end up staying at all. We gave our weapons, actually, if um, I remember correctly, to, to the, uh, first ID guys because we were getting rid of all our weapons because we were, you know, getting rid of the second brigade. So, right. um, but my buddy from Bolick actually got there and, uh, he actually ended up going up to, to Iraq.
0: That's uh, that's nuts. Um, where were you in Kuwait, Arif John, or were you at like Camp New York, Camp Virginia? Oh, Bering, Camp Buring. Oh, <laughs> dear lord. Anybody yeah. who, and again, for the civilians listening, wondering why we're opining about this, like it, Kuwait is just—it's a barren desert. It sucks. They're, they're, like at least in Baghdad, there's something to do. There's something to keep you busy. I mean, when you talk about Groundhog's Day, Kuwait is the epitome of it. There's nothing. There's not a mission there. You just kind of stand around and pick sand out of your ass the whole time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's pretty much what it was like we were out there in our tanks, uh, just going across the desert doing training stuff.
0: Yeah, sounds like a really. It kept us
1: busy for sure. Uh,
0: So when you get back, um, I guess the question is, when does this whole PAO venture start for you?
1: Oh, so I got back and I. I I mean, am I
0: skipping a major part here? I I feel like there's okay.
1: No, not at all. I just I you know, we got back and shut down the brigade and it was really boring for a year. Um and then uh I decided I just I just did not want to do combat arms anymore. I'd tired of it. Uh didn't see myself wanting to put in all the the headaches that I saw my company commander and S three officers all put in and said, you know, I wanna do something that's gonna translate outside the military also and so um, I applied to PA and at that time they were accepting first lieutenant promotables, and uh, I think I was like one of three three to get in so um, couldn't change my career course still went to the maneuver career course um, but already had um, PAO for follow on so that made for some awkward conversations with the career course because I would pitch <laughs> these off orders. And then my instructors would be like, where are you going next? And I'd be like, I'm going to uh, public affairs course." Infos. <laughs>
0: they
1: just, they just roll their
0: eyes. <laughs> <You're> going, where? <laughs> you where? You should have said Fort Meade. That's it. Fort Meade. Going to Fort Meade. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. When you, I'm just curious when you say that you wanted something that translates. I mean, there is cyber. There is, you know, signal and communications and stuff like that, that translates really well. Was there anything in particular about public affairs that just drew you more than something else? I mean, even logistics works in the outside world, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I didn't really, even if I'm being completely honest, I didn't really do a whole whole lot of homework on what PA was before I applied. Um, I'd actually put in for a selection packet for civil affairs and then I declined going to selection after thinking about that. And so I was like, I don't want to do that actually. Um, and then I put in for PA and, you know, I guess the the journalistic side i have always liked writing. So I thought maybe I would be able to write some stuff. Um, I have a little bit, but it's just, it's definitely not the crux of what of what PA does. So, um, no, I just kind of wanted a different tempo and and something that was completely different than Combat Arms, which had been you know up until that point had been 19 Delta and 19 Alpha, and I just wanted to to go do something different.
0: Yeah, I and mean, again, I I would say this much, you know, and I I've held to this maxim throughout 20 plus years. Um, everybody in the military has their slice of the pie. I don't know that one part of the pie is more important than the other. Um, just like any ingredient that makes that pie. Not not one is important than the other. If you take one of the ingredients out, the pie tastes different. And so uh, from that standpoint, you don't have to be behind a gun pulling a trigger and kicking down a door in order to have an important role in the military. I think they all, mm-hmm. one way or another, feed into the bigger piece of what makes, you know, uh, the military a very unique sort of corporate culture and, and, and a job that not, a, that not everybody wants to do. So... From that aspect, um, yeah, I certainly understand uh, the decision process um, and, and at least trying to do something different. After you finish um, your, your public affairs qualification course, you head where?
1: 108 Air Defense Artillery here at Fort Bragg. Okay. So I, I, had, I had, again, I had similar to my last situation when I was enlisted, uh, I had five stellar spots uh, available to me as a brand new captain in PA. And so I chose to come back here um, and I was there for about 18 months uh, doing air defense things. So uh, it was, it was interesting. I didn't know anything about air defense. So um, it wasn't a whole lot of of media relations and and journalistic opportunities, but I got to go a few places and see some things that I'd never um, known about or understood and work with some of the Marines out here at Camp Lejeune and, you know, watch them shoot, you know, missiles into the air and trying to shoot down uh, little like drone planes and stuff. So it was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. Are those the air defense things you were referring to? It's a pretty yeah. vague, vague term, air defense things.
1: <laughs> I Yeah, I honestly don't. I still don't know what they do exactly. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> um,
0: so, uh, you know, one of the unique things about being public affairs is your relationship with the command um, and sort of mm-hmm. being in the commander's right pocket. It, that is a different perspective than you had as an enlisted individual. Was that a tough adjustment for you?
1: Um, yeah, well, it was a little bit, um, particularly being a captain. On you know, most of those guys that are that are close to the commander are or, or majors or lieutenant colonels. So um, I wasn't like intimidated or anything, but I was definitely having to fight for a seat at the table at almost every single job I went to, and so um, and then to be you know, everybody said you're supposed to be a trusted advisor, but you know, you typically don't just walk in and have the, the commander's complete trust on, on day one. So, um, trying to build a relationship and trying to gain that trust just takes time. And, uh, it was just, it was just different. It was a lot of, you know, inward relationship building within the command first before I could, you know, start trying to build relationships outside the command with other units and media and stuff like that. So my focus was always on the the command first and in the unit and make sure that I was, you know, good to go there first.
0: So uh, if I read correctly, that your next assignment is actually a deployment to Egypt? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does that come about?
1: So that came about because I was having dinner at, um, well, one of those reunions we had. We had one of those those deployment reunions. We had it here at Bragg. And uh, like I said, Tim Matheny was uh, General Miller's Sergeant Major in Afghanistan. Well, he's also General Miller's Sergeant Major at Fort Benning um, when General Miller was the two star there. And so ended up at General Miller's house basically um, having dinner and, and hanging out. And uh, he had, um, he knew my old battalion commander at Fort Carson in 167, who was now a colonel and was heading over to Egypt. And so we called him up and he was like, Come be my PAO. And so I got a, a by name request to go over there and, and be uh, my former battalion commander's PAO in Egypt.
0: And the moral of that story is don't have dinner with two-star generals. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, nine yeah. out of ten times. I'm an 05 now pending 06. Nine out of ten times when a general asks me to go anywhere, I'm still, like, hesitant to go. Like, I, I'm good, man. <laughs> you, you, you sit, sit me out on this one. Because nothing good ever comes of it. Ever. It's never yeah. not work with, with flag officers. It's never not work. They don't ever kick yeah. back, put their feet up and say, let's just relax and have a beer. So, yeah, no, hard pass. Thanks. And to any general officers that I may work for or will work for in the future, just understand. That's why I say no. It's nothing personal. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you end up in Egypt. Uh, and if you thought Kuwait was a desert, damn.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, Egypt was actually – the place that I was at was really nice. It okay, was where was I? Carmel um it's Sharm el it's like a resort right on the red sea and so oh. i could have i could have thrown a baseball into the red sea from where i was at and we had our own cut of beach on the on the base um it was a multinational environment we had all the five eyes countries and you know there's there's 12 total countries there now everything outside of that little pocket of Sharm el was you know rugged terrain um but you know the actual spot that I was in was really nice. Um, I got diving certified out there, you know, advanced diver and deep diver and all this other stuff. So we had a good time. Um,
0: I'm getting a sense was, that, that job was a lot different though. Yeah. I'm getting a sense that, uh, in your career, it's either dog shit assignment or like cool as balls assignment. Like <laughs> there's really no in between with you. Um, yeah, that's when, about right. yeah, when you said it was a, was a different assignment, what'd you mean?
1: I, we basically just did protocol. And so we had a lot of, you know, 12 nations there, all the leaders want to come through. And so my job mainly was protocol. We, we didn't push out any type of press advisories or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, I was helping make sure that the beds were made and the fruit trays were ready and the doors were held and stuff like that. What so it was, was the like task force protocol.
0: itself doing there though?
1: They overwatch uh, certain areas of the the Red Sea and, and other parts in Egypt. So they used to have a base in the northern – they still have a base there, but the headquarters of the people that are in the Sinai region used to be in the north, and they moved it down to the south about five or six years ago um, to the, the Sharm el-Sheikh location. Um, but they basically just have spots all over um, uh, providing overwatch. It's part of the um, – you know, Israeli-Egypt relations. Um, I'm not too, like, familiar with all the intricacies of it, but the National Guard were there. So we had active duty, and we had National Guard, and the National Guard would actually man the the posts that were overwatching, um, like, the the Red Sea and and stuff like that. Um, You know, 10 National Guard guys actually, you know, they go up on, you know, Tehran Island, and they overwatch – there so they're out there like twenty eight days at a time. Um, you know, just just overwatching stuff. They have little gyms and little, you know, little bunk areas and you know, you know, recently they had that that plane crash uh, over there that killed five people. Um those planes well those uh not plane the helicopter crash, those helicopters typically go over there two or three times a week, um do like resupply missions and stuff like that. So um that those those are pretty common. Um when I saw that the news on that, you know, I thought, you know, it's probably just a, a resupply mission and you know, something went wrong. Um, because those are pretty common flights uh over there. And so yeah, they just you know, we just basically sat around watching the watching the, the posts that needed to be watched over there in the Sinai area.
0: Pretty cool. Egypt. Any sign of Moses? No, weren't no. hanging around. Okay, tablets. No parting of that sea over any, there. Any commandments hanging around anywhere? Just one, one, we
1: actually one. weren't allowed to go to the uh, the Christian sites over there. Oh, really? There. Why? Yeah, uh, too high of a threat level. Too much of a like because there was a, um, you know, I think you know if I remember correctly, the time up there that was why they moved everything down because of uh, the concern of ISIS and stuff up in the the northern region.
0: Oh, okay. Well, see, the more you know. Uh, after Egypt, you're back to where
1: that's when I got the third group um, okay. in October of eighteenth so that's that's where I went after Egypt
0: so you end up which oh by the way, sounds like a really cool assignment. I mean, granted, you're back at bragg, but you're you're in this community that you know has the highest operational tempo of any you know units in in the military probably on a routine basis um so what's what is the general life of a PAO in that world?
1: Oh, so in, in a group setting, um, our shop is a lot different. So whereas like third BCT of 82nd. We'll have two people in their shop. We have, uh, we had 14 to 16 ranging in there. So much greater team, um, capabilities were a lot different. We had our own in-house illustrators and, um, story writers and, um, you know, senior NCO that had three sevens, um, with me. So, um, but on day-to-day basis, a lot of it is, uh, you know, putting out, uh, social media stuff, um, doing media relations because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of our guys are all over the world. Um, and so, um, you know, doing those relations, making sure that the, that was tied in with the command. Uh, most of the stuff I did was more of the up and out while, um, my NCOs would do like the down and in. Um, so I would, I would make sure that I had a pulse on the command. I was, I had a pulse on the operational stuff, um, and just an overall sense of, of where everybody's at and what they were doing. So I was prepared for, um, anything that might
0: happen. I'm curious. Um, and again, you're only with, uh, I guess one command or one commander while you were there, maybe two, but you know, uh, the approach to covering the special operations community, you know, Even immediately post 9-11, you know, it didn't have the shine that it has now. You know, you're talking, I mean, it really took off after bin Laden was killed. But, you know, there's this whole level of special operations that is now completely known about, completely public. Everybody's got, you know, some sort of frame of reference for it. Whereas, you know, before then, it was all covert. It was very, you know, hush-hush behind the scenes. And so your job in sort of covering slash promoting that whole sort of part of the army that we didn't talk about before is, was there a a sense that the guys that you were working for were anti putting out stories and information or were they more embracing it given everything that's gone on?
1: Um, I I think definitely in the soft community, they're um, much more close to having their name out there or their face out there uh, in the media. And and we actually have um, like IT management, procedures for these guys to make sure that the uh uh and girls and you know everybody. It's not just the Green Berets, it's actually like anybody that's in the unit. Uh we have these ID management controls. And so um I would say that generally though they you know you hear the word reporter or press and uh they're kind of just scurrying away. <laughs> um and so it's not, you know, my commander um actually definitely embraced it. We were in um, Burkina Faso in 2019 and we had CNN and Wall Street Journal and New York times, and CBS, and a lot of other people there. And and he was granting, you know, anybody that wanted an interview, he would do an interview, uh, but he would only do it on the record. He would not do anything off the record on background, only on the record. Um, But he would, you know, give them their time and and answer the questions that they um, wanted to ask. And so I think that from the command leadership, they understand the importance of the media and what needs to be said out there and what needs to be told. Um, but you know, it's, it's more, it's more so of a strategic thing than, you know, the, what we call like gripping grin photos or the cake cutting ceremonies and stuff like that that you see all the time. So I think there is a good, there's some good, um, you know, people that are, that are definitely embracing it, but I'd say overall, you know, People were kind of hesitant with the media around.
0: Just out of curiosity, did you think that was a good or bad philosophy for him to only do things on the record?
1: Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I thought it was good because he trusted me to do anything off the record on background. So you know, I was I had already developed relationships, and I still have them with those media. And you know, we're living in there in the same rooms and. You know, in hot, dusty Burkina Faso. And so we're getting to know each other. You know, we're, you know, having beers or having dinner together or whatever. So he trusts me to develop those relationships and give them the information they need. Um, so when they come there, you know, he's on the record. And I think the reason he did that was so that nothing was twisted. They couldn't say, you know, this was said by a senior defense official or whatever when he didn't actually say that. Um, and so if that's what he was comfortable with, you know, you know, that's what, that's what we went with. I mean, I even tried to prep him. I said, sir, do you want me to do any media prep? He's like, Nope. And I was like, you know, I'd never heard that before. Usually these commanders want me to run down a list of questions for him. But you know, it worked out. It actually worked out. And there were a lot of good stories that came out of that. And, uh, and he was, he's probably one of the best people I've ever seen talk to the media.
0: What was one of the toughest challenges about working in that environment in a PA sense?
1: Uh, just the, con- you never knew it was going to happen. Um, the constant changing of it. Um, you know, we were, we were taken across off, you know, you know, everywhere, but even in third group, we were taking um, casualties still in Afghanistan while we're, you know, trying to promote within, and within the military, trying to recruit people in, um, while still, you know, maintaining footprints everywhere, um, that we were at. And so there was just a lot going on, um, and, uh, you know, that was probably the biggest challenge, just trying to juggle it all and prioritize what needed to be said and what didn't need to be said and what we should be putting out there and what shouldn't we, um, and then, you know, making sure that, um, the commander was getting, you know, what he wanted to say out there as well.
0: You're now at first special forces command, um, a higher position than, than at, you know, third SF. Um, so I, I wonder you know what is the what's the goal that you're trying to tell, or what story are you trying to tell for these guys, um, or is it just tell things as they happen? I mean, there's a proactive approach to media and there's a reactive approach to media. Um, you know, I would lean on the proactive being the better, but commanders don't always give you that sort of leeway and authority. So you're in this high level; it can get very sort of corporate, if you will, um, in the way they mm-hmm. handle things. I mean, are you, do you find that that's the case, or is this sort of just um, the army doing what the army does and the way they do it, if that makes sense.
1: Um, I'd, I'd say there's probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, we're we're first SFC has definitely changed um, some of the stuff they've done over the past few years, and you know they I know that they had labeled themselves as like the uh, special forces division, basically because the two star command. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, not just the SS but the uh psyops and ca and the the mi were like we're one you know one community um there's a there's a vision document that's been put out um talking about cross-functional teams um and just you know as we you know transition from what we've been doing the past 20 years i think i've definitely seen a, a shift in in how um these social operations communities uh you know, put their messaging out, and certainly at First SFC, they're doing it. They've been doing it for the past year and a half or so, um, and so that's that's really what we're trying to do. You know, and, and anyone that you know we can get to help, you know, you know, push our messaging out there, and, and then bring folks into the team um, is, is what we're trying to do.
0: It's a very complicated time for the military uh, in general, um, given where we are politically and everything else. Um, you know, in social media, everybody has it and there are people who are currently in the military who have it. There are retired guys who have it, retired, you know, special, special ops guys who have it and have jobs doing other things, whether it's commentating on news channels or writing columns and things of that nature. Um, from your, put, just leave your PA hat on, your PA hat on, you know, Rick's personal opinion aside, but from a PA standpoint, um, is, is... The military is sort of doomed to fail in the social media world, where everything can be critiqued and everything can be ripped to shreds and everything can be criticized. Um, you got a very, you know, small window to get it right, uh, and and for an organization that has made an awful lot of mistakes in the entire military that is uh, publicly and privately that have come to light over the years, it's like it's almost like a diminishing returns with social media. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, where, where do you stand on that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that, uh you know, there's certain units that definitely go very proactive on social media. Um And when you do that, it just carries certain risk. And so, you know, they're accepting that risk and some of them have made mistakes and, you know, some more than others. Um But I think the general consensus is that, you know, we we're going to accept the risk if we, you know, Either way, we're going to accept the risk, but you know, at least we have what we want to put out there. Um, of course, mistakes are going to be made; um, they always are in every single. You know, not just the military, but but everywhere. Um, I think how people go about telling those stories is, is a bit different and you know, it changes from unit to unit, um, and some some might work and some might you know not. Um, but I think there's value to having, definitely to having a social media and keeps the pulse on what's going on in the rest of the world and, uh, the rest of the world can actually see what you're, you're doing, um, and what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, you know, the way I break it down is, um, and the way I did a third group was each platform is different has different audiences. Uh, Twitter, we used to talk to, um, you know, higher up in the chain of command and external audiences like media, uh, congressional leaders, uh, civilian leaders, et cetera, you know, Instagram was for, mainly recruiting purposes, trying to get, you know, bring people in and show them what we do and try and grab their attention. Um, and then the Facebook is for like families and stuff like that. And so I think if people can utilize those platforms and, and tailor to those audiences, I think they can do a good job. Um, they're just going to have to learn to take the, take the mistakes when they come and deal with it. Like, you just gotta be resilient because, um, the mistakes are going to happen. So I don't think the army is in trouble with what they're doing. Um, from a unit standpoint, um, you know, I could argue on some other aspects of it, but uh, the unit standpoint and putting out information from the units, I don't I think they're they're doing a pretty good job overall.
0: Yeah, no. And and again, I mean, it's it, it, there's the challenge of, you know, a unit Facebook page or a unit Twitter account that puts out information or, you know, you talked about the, the handshake photos and things of that nature. That's all fine and good. But it doesn't necessarily reach an audience, right? It's not designed sure. on its merit to grow uh, and get bigger and reach more people. It's designed sort of just as news and standard information, which doesn't attract a, a large swath of audience. Um, having a social media presence and being funny and, and, and you know, uh, getting likes and retweets and everything else comes with a little bit of personality, but there's a whole lot of risk. For an organization that isn't known for having personality, and by that I mean the yeah. entire Department of Defense, we're not good at personality. Um, we have some personalities, but as a, as a general whole, uh, personality is not what we do well. It's not what we're meant to do well. Um, it, it's it's secondary to who we are because, again, we're not promoting individualism. We're promoting a, a bigger, wider picture of unity, and so yeah. because social media is a very individual thing especially if you want to excel at it, uh, those two kind of ideas run counter. I mean, I mean, I know you understand what I'm saying, but it's just that that's a conundrum, I yeah. think, that, that, you know, the military, the Army, the Navy, Department of Defense, they're all in on social media.
1: Yeah, I think I think certain, you know, senior leaders are being more personable. Yes. And, you know, you could argue that's good or, or bad at times, um, and then some, certain ones aren't. They're just putting out, you know, informational stuff. Um, you know, what, some people have asked me like, should my commander have a personal social media? You know, anything that we put out from the unit is coming is can be assumed as coming from the commander. Like I would never put anything on social media that I would not think that my commander would say. Does does my commander need to have his own personal social media so that he can relate to everyone? I mean, I, I don't I don't think so unless he's gonna go out there and do it every single day because you'd have to be a consistent presence on there. Um, it's just not, there's just not enough time to, to go do that. And that's kind of why we have public affairs officers. Um, you know, I do think it's good in, in certain situations like crises and, and certain things like that, that the commander does need to get out there and, and have his his or her you know voice out there or face on something and, and discuss it. Um, but I, overall, I, d- I just don't think that, um, it's going to pay dividends for every single commander. And I've seen it now, you know, from, you know, every, it seems like every battalion commander or or a company commander wants to have a social media presence. Um, And there's, you know, there's good things and bad things with that. Um, And I've seen, I've seen some good ones and I've, you know, I've certainly seen some ones that are, you know, kind of straying, but like, I I just don't see the value in, in having all those, but I do think that the army as a whole, Um, they certainly dominate Twitter that there's not as many Navy, air force Marines on there. Um, And, you know, I've seen it work for the benefit of people like Sergeant Major of the army and, you know, him being personable with others. And, you know, that's good. Like soldiers feel like they're relating to their senior leaders when, when people like that are on there. I just don't know if it should be for every single commander.
0: Are are we going to fail consistency when it comes to punishing uh, Department of Defense members for certain things they do on social media? Because everything is in context, right? Everything has a context that you do it in. And yes, we have written rules about political stuff, right? And what you can participate in what you can't. But what may be a disparaging comment, uh, or be perceived as a disparaging comment from one person, might not be that bad Another, I mean, you know, the, it's the old idea of pornography, right? You know when you see it? Um it's not that cut and dry. Like I know something offensive when I see it on social media, because hell, I mean, a a picture of the middle finger may make somebody laugh. It may upset somebody else. And so, you know, I I just, we've seen recently. um, And I, I, by the way, I find this, this discussion fascinating. um, But we've seen recently, I mean, there was a space force. Lieutenant Colonel who was relieved uh, for a podcast Mm -hmm. interview. They did. Um, you know, we've seen people get in trouble for things that they've tweeted and everything else. I mean, like, it, it's one of those things where it's like, there's no way to apply this standard evenly across the board. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have one. I'm just saying it's a very slippery slope, 100%. Yeah, it's,
1: it's certainly a gray area. Um, I've seen I've seen some people get away with some things and, and almost the exact same thing. Someone else won't get away with it. Um, and it really just depends on how much publicity it gets, I guess. Um, but there's, you know, because of the first amendment and everything that, you know, you're allowed to do on there, like you said, barring political stuff, um, there's a lot of ambiguity on, on social media. And, um, it's, it's almost the eye of the beholder basically. And, you know, if they perceive it to be a certain way and that's the narrative that's written then you know, (laughs) You're basically doomed at that point. Um, but you know, someone else can can say something else that you you find offensive, and you know, it could be okay because it's just accepted in that you know general community of you know people that are interacting with one another all the time. So the gray area is like ninety percent of how people operate on on uh, certain social media platforms, and I'm not sure that I, I definitely don't agree that there's consistency on there. Um, And I'm not sure that we're going to be able to have consistency on there just because the uh, regulations are just not in place to, you know, bar people from saying, you know, basically what they want to say. I mean, it's freedom of speech. People can go out there and and say certain things. So um, I I think that's good. I think it's good. There's a gray area, but it has to be, you know, we can't have the court of public opinion uh, crossing over into the professional Sense and you know, implicating people um, in that sense. So,
0: well, in fairness, that's sort of what happened to you, right? I mean, it, it was a mob mentality sort of thing um, that that took over when when your tweet went out and went went viral. Um, you know, and I I think to a certain extent, I mean, look, two things can be true, right? In in one sense. There was a level of inappropriateness. I think that even you would agree to at this point. Two, there was a mob mentality that made that thing a whole lot bigger than it should have been. Is that? I think those are true. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you know, you know, when I made the tweet, I certainly didn't think that it was um,
0: going to go viral. <laughs> <I> was,
1: yeah, <laughs> well, that too. But like, I I certainly didn't think it was a it was a huge deal. Um, At the time, you know, I was with my friend and and a couple other people. Um, Then I woke up the next day and got got told about it. Um, You know, but, you know, there's definitely a mob mentality. I mean, I I certainly don't understand uh, some of the people that were coming after me or like, you know, reserve officers and active officers out there, you know, making bets on how my career was going to end up. And, you know, all these sorts of things um, that were being said about me. Uh, it was absolutely a mob mentality. The things that were being said about me were ridiculous. Um, and you know, it's over now there was an inquiry and, um, you know, it came back with, with nothing on it, but it's, it certainly, uh, you know, caused me a little bit of anxiety. Um, and I moved jobs and, you know, you know, the percep- perception was out there and, you know, what my, what my boss, uh, asked me was that next morning, he said, you know, what should we do? and I told him, you know, you know, if you think I'm, you know, ruining the reputation of the unit, then you got to let me go. I mean, I would say that for anybody. So um, whether or not that weighed into the decision or not, I don't know, but um, you know, I'm happy with how things turned out now and, and the army went through the process that they needed to go through and they, you know, they did it and it's over. Um, and I moved on to a place that I'm, I'm happy working at uh, now and I stay within the community. So, it all worked out. Um, but yeah, on online, the, the whole cancel culture mob mentality or whatever you want to call it, um, is out of control sometimes. And, you know, the fact that you have officers and, and senior enlisted people that are, you know, beating up on, um, you know, other officers or junior officers or junior enlisted or whomever it is, just one another, um, is ridiculous. And there doesn't seem to be any type of appetite to bring, um, you know, military members together and, uh, be respectful online. So I've, I've actually, you know, advocated for more respectful dialogue online. You know, we're all going to have different opinions, but you could at least, you know, um, not be making bets like on, you know, seafood dinners, uh, whether or not my career is going to end or whoever's career is going to end or, right. um, calling people names or, you know, whatever. So well,
0: mil- mil- I can not
1: control t- other people, so I can only control me.
0: <laughs> right. Mill Twitter, as they call it, military Twitter is a, is a, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty big cesspool. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm read in on it, obviously. Um, not only because of, uh, you know, my, my job in the army, but, you know, just as a, my job in media, it's, it's sort of, you know, draws me in. Um, I try to be more of a spectator than an active participant in it. Uh, see Black Rifle Coffee, for example, you know, and everything that they're going through. I mean, it, you know, military Twitter is just an awful place. But I, I just want to ask you one more question on on your situation with Happen. What was your biggest personal takeaway from that?
1: Um, so actually, you know, I would say is, is I went and talked to the uh, the shark guys, mm-hmm. the, you know, program people um and you know they talked about intent versus impact and how they saw it all and they said you know obviously that was you know sexual harassment or something like that was not your intent because you know your friend was right there with you and like, you weren't sexually harassing anybody um but the impact was quite different and so you know, that's kind of a takeaway i have and you know perception um and intent versus impact and that was probably the biggest thing. So now, you know, I think about that before I put stuff out there, like how could someone else that doesn't know anything about me or might disagree with me is going to take something online before um, I put it, I put it out there.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a scarlet letter for you. Right. I mean, you know, um, again, my producer and I were were talking about this before. I mean, we're all for people making mistakes, sort of repenting, learning from it and moving on. You know, there's that's actually a positive story, right? Like instead of looking at your situation and go, You made a mistake. You got retrained, as you will. Um, You're better for it, and you've corrected it and moved on. I think those are valuable things about our organization. Um, And yet, again, you'll be painted with a scarlet letter for it pretty much every time you're online. That's fine because guess what? You don't live online. I mean, you know, uh, the the great part about it is you can just log off and put your phone down, right? Right. Um, yeah, that's the one joy of having—not the one joy. That would sound really bad. The one joy of having kids. No, uh, one of the several joys. About it. when you have kids, especially I have two twin five-year-old boys, they're always doing something that requires my attention, so I can just put the phone down, you know, and and mm-hmm. it, it sort of makes all that go away within like ten minutes. So, um, but for what it's worth, you know, again, I, I think that there is something positive that came from your situation that nobody is dwelling on, nobody's talking about. You can't change the mob in a different direction. It has to kind of sort of waft there on its own. Um, but again, uh, if you sit here and you tell me that you learned from it, you moved on, you're better for it, and you're a better leader and everything else, then that's something we kind of, you know, in our organization need to, to acknowledge and say thanks or, or, you know, hey, welcome back to the team um, because that's kind mm-hmm. of how we do things. Yep. But, you know, again, social media tends to forget all that because, you know, <laughs> viral. Um What's uh, what's next for you as far as uh, your career?
1: Um, so I'll go to the ILE um, for uh, majors up here probably next spring. Um, but I'll be at first SSC for a while, and then and then figure it out after after ILE where I'm going to go next. Um, trying to stay around Bragg because my three kids are here as well. So um, just trying to hang around here, <laughs> see how many jobs I can get at Fort Bragg. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, man, I, I thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Um, a lot of experiences that, that you've went through, um, that have sort of shaped where you are today, but you know, you, you, t- you go back to those deployment experiences that you had and, uh, you know, it, it obviously had a profound effect on you. And, and I think it's great that you're still tight with all those folks. Um, that, that's what we need. You know, we, we need those, that sort of togetherness still not to, to let guys go by the wayside and, and forget that they still exist. And, and, uh, you know, you talked about saving some of those guys that you couldn't save to suicide. That's how you do it, right? Like you just keep them close, yeah. as close as you can. And hopefully we're preventing a lot more of that. Um And, and thank you for your honesty on your situation. I, I appreciate it. I think it's great that uh, you're so candid with it and willing to share. But again, I, as I said, I mean it honestly, you know, if you've learned from it and you move on, I tip my cap to you and let's just soldier on. You know, I mean, that's that's all you can do at this point. Um yeah. if, if you're in a good place with it, you're at peace with it, then I'm, then I'm happy for you. But certainly... Uh, We appreciate your time, man. I enjoyed hearing your story, and and thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. Thanks for having me, Mark. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts.